to James, a little more testing. I think everybody's a perfect Christian now, complete lacking nothing, because we went through James chapter 1 three, three weeks in a row, so everybody here is perfect, right? Okay. Are you learning anything about James? Are you learning anything about the testing and trials you're going through? Are you learning anything about true faith that prays and does not doubt? Are you learning anything about our inner attitudes of our own heart? Are we finding out? Are we discovering who we really are as Christians? Because that's what a test does. It reveals that which is still lacking. It reveals that which God still wants to give us graciously. Remember that. This is God who says, I want to give. I want to give you character. I want to give you love and self-control and kindness and goodness and gentleness. I want you to meet every trial faithfully like my son did and come against every temptation like my son did with the word of God. I want you to come out of your temptation like my son did when he came out of the desert filled with the power of the Holy Ghost. That's what he has for us. That's what he wants for us. This is not God like hoping he can trip us up. God wants us strong. He wants us complete. He wants us to taste what Jesus says, his complete joy. Complete joy. To love God with all our heart, strength, soul, and mind. So there's a lot going on here in the text as I've gone over in the last couple of weeks. But let's read James. I'm just going to well, we'll read 1 to 12. Even though I'll only be speaking on uh, 9 to 12 today. Excuse me. <coughs> James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes and the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of a sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. These are our texts for tonight. And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you. We do love you, God. And we know that you've given us the, the promise of the crown of life, Father God. And we want to wear it now. We want to taste it now. We want to taste what it be to be like Christ, our Savior, Father God. We want to know to be complete usable for the the, the master's use, Father God. Help us to understand this text and apply it to our life, Father God. Let us know these things that take place in Christ's precious name. Amen. Dignity and humility. That's what James is talking about in 9, 10, 11. These are verses of scripture that always meant a lot to me. And I love preaching on this text. I've got to be honest with you. I love it. I've only done it several times, but I'm always excited when I do. And... uh, as we said uh, many times from this uh, pulpit, that death is the great equalizer. Everybody has to go through it. Nobody can avoid it. It's common to all men. Some men get away with without paying taxes, but nobody gets away without paying death, that's for sure. All men have to face it and live under its reality. 
And this is a true statement worthy of repeating over and over as a way of reminder that this life is short and it's very unpredictable. It's a good statement. It's something to build your relationship with Christ on. But for the Christian, the greater equalizer, there's a greater equalizer, did you know that? Than death. It's Christ's atonement. This is the great equalizer. Christ's atonement. I'll explain it to you as James does here. It has the power of divine perception. Can you repeat that? The power of divine perception. Because that's what James is all about in 9, 10, 11. It's divine perception. As we have been going through the book of James and talking about the testing of our faith, the different trials we go through, what genuine prayer is, how to pray for the right thing, praying for character, not for the things of this world, and doing and praying without doubting, without doubting God's goodness, without doubting His promises, trusting in His revealed character, that He's a gracious provider, and that He will give wisdom to His children as the very bread of life that we need. This is the bread of life. We need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit in every situation of life. We now come to the first test or trial, we might say, that verses 2 and 3 talk about. And it's a timeless trial. I will phrase it in a question. Has the Christ event rearranged your perception of life? I'm going to ask everybody that. Has the Christ event, the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ on your behalf, not not the world, you and me, has that event 2,000 years ago, has it changed your perception on life? Is it the prism, amen, is it the prism you make all your decisions from in life? Is it the Christ event that dictates who you are as a human being? Or what you don't have. Or what you do have. That's what's taking place in our, in our text tonight. We might miss this if we're not careful. These verses apply to every Christian. Not just the poor and the rich. Again, has the Christ event rearranged your perception of life? Historically, in ancient Rome, as James is writing over here, there was basically two classes of people. There was the rich and there was the... <coughs> There was no middle class. Middle class is something that started in America. It didn't start anywhere else. There was no such thing as the middle class. 90% of the population were considered poor 2,000 years ago in the Greco-Roman world. 90%. 10% ruled the 90. The rich ruled and the poor were oppressed. Period. There was no benevolence. There was no welfare. There was nothing. This polar opposite dynamic between the rich and the poor was played out every aspect of Roman life. So naturally it was part of the Christian church. It it crept into the church. The church is a microcosm of what's going on in the world, what's taking place in the world. When people get saved, we bring all our nonsense into the church. This is a test tube and God works out these worldly desires and inner attitudes that we just sung about, he works it out of our life within the church context. James's address to this relationship between the rich and poor is no coincidence. If you read James chapter 1, as we just did, and you get to verse 9, it looks like it comes out of nowhere. 
We're, we're all of us, we're talking about trials, we're talking about asking for wisdom, we're talking about praying and asking and not doubting. If you doubt, you're like a man who's double-minded, it's sort of like the wind and a wave of the sea, and all of a sudden he starts talking about the rich and the poor. They're out of nowhere. It's, it's, it's the same thought in his mind. And we've got to ask, where are you getting to? What's taking place here, James? James' address to this relationship between the rich and the poor is no coincidence. It actually runs through the whole letter. And it comes to a head in chapter 5, verse 1, uh, 1 to 6. And I'm going to read it as we put it up. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have you corroded, and the corrosion will be evident against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not or cannot resist you. So this dealing with the rich-poor dynamic runs throughout the whole letter. It comes to a head in chapter 5. We just read that. We're getting it in seed form in chapter 1. He's dealing with it, but he's going to deal with it not the way you and I would think. You and I would think just get money from here and get it over here. Sounds like the government. Just, just get it from here to here, and then that's how we'll deal with this. Not so much with biblical writers. God doesn't deal with it that way. This is the beauty. And I don't want you to miss this in this book. I love the way James approaches this problem. That this sentiment is still in the world today, and it's even in the church is no mystery. This sentiment between class warfare, between uh, warfare between the rich and the poor, is still in the world. It's still in America. It's still in the Christian church. It's a it's, it's a horrible reality. The Bible's teaching on the rich poor dynamic is still relevant. And do you know why it's still relevant? It's because the human heart has not changed. Money is still an idol. Poor people by nature find themselves in oppressive situations. They have no advocate, even in the Christian church. And money is still a false God that we always have to contend against. Isn't it true? There's an allure to it. There's a desire to, you know, there's mobile, uh, uh, upward mobility. We want to do better. But it's, 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 it's a seducing song. We've got to be careful of it. In chapter 5, he deals with this head-on. Taking on the rich face-to-face. Paul does this in in 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 17 and 18. He says this, Paul, As for the rich in this present age, or he could say, As for the rich in this present age who are Christians, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. These rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. But here, he deals with the problem. James deals with it from a a, a divine uh, perspective. Don't miss this. This divine perspective is a genuine reality for both parties involved, the rich and the poor. He does not just give the poor a pass. Don't miss that. The poor get no pass. 
as though they are only victims. He does address this victimization as I just read in chapter 5 when he says, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. He does deal with the victimization of the poor. The reason for this is because God has generally weighed in on this problem in the Christ event. God has done something for the poor in the resurrection and crucifixion of Christ that man could never, ever do. He gave him dignity. Gave him dignity. We need to see this from God's perspective. The inner attitude, either rich or the poor, is paramount at this point. There are two inner attitudes that our text points us to tonight. Let's go to our text and we'll look at the first one. Verse 9. Excuse me. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. I'm going to read the Amplified Bible on this one, okay? Let the brother in humble circumstances glory in his evelation. As a Christian called to true riches in a co-heir with God. The answer for the poor Christian doesn't start with a handout. And I don't want you to miss that. The answer to the poor Christian doesn't start with get him something. The answer for the poor Christian doesn't start with demonizing the rich. The answer to the poor in the Christian church starts with the finished work of Christ. Don't miss that. That's what James is talking about. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Not the lowly brother to expect something from somebody else. He'll deal with that matter later. The Bible deals with the rich taking care of the poor, and we should. But God has something greater to feast on than just food. And that's the finished work of Christ that brings a person, no matter how poor they are in this world, no matter how inferior they might have felt before they came to Christ, when a man or a woman with, who's, who's of humble circumstances comes to Christ, they become kings and queens of God. They have to remember that at all times and to exalt and its exaltation of what Christ has done for the poor. That's the answer. It's part of the answer, what I should say. Of course, we do meet the needs. But this is outside the box. This is thinking outside the box. This is what the world has to be careful when we're trying to take care of the poor. And we should. We should not miss the point that they need dignity. Christ has given us all dignity. The answer to the poor is the finished work of Christ. What a far cry from all other political methods of dealing with the poor. Government should be involved in the poor's life, helping as much as it can in providing basic needs, of course. Even providing ample opportunity for education and work. But God's way is first and foremost giving them inner dignity and respect. This is a forgotten intangible. Please don't miss that. 
Dignity is a forgotten intangible in this world today. It's just as important. Dignity is just as important for the soul as food is for what? The body. If the body doesn't have water, if the body doesn't have food, it shrivels up. It becomes weak. So it is with the soul that has no dignity, no self-respect. About 20 years ago, I was trying to think how long. It was probably in the early 90s. There was a, a paper boy. This one they used to sell, used to go door to door handing out papers. They were still doing that. And it was an interesting person. Every morning I would get on my bike, I'd go to work. And, you know, at least three, four night, days out of the week, I would see him delivering papers. He had his shopping, uh, shopping cart and he had his papers every day. And he'd go door to door giving his paper. But there was something interesting about this boy. He was probably about 90 years old. He had a broken English. He wore a tie and a suit every day. You see, in Russia, in communist Russia, he was a doctor. And when he came here, he refused not to work and get a handout. He dressed himself up every morning in a suit and tie, and he went door to door and handed out the times. You know why? He wasn't going to let his poverty dictate to him his dignity. That's what the world needs. He knew he was somebody on the inside. Though the circumstances that he found himself in, you would never have known it. He didn't allow those circumstances to dictate your inferior. We have nothing worth to live for. It wasn't below his man to get up and do the job of a 12-year-old. And did it, and I watched him, and me and my wife would watch him, and then, then the cane came out, then the walker came out, and then one day I never saw him again. Probably took over about a five-year span. I'm assuming it's been 20 years, so he's probably dead now. But that's what dignity is. That's what God gives us. It's not determined what we don't have. That we brush ourselves off and we go to work and we do the best we can. It's not, I don't get up and you don't get up and do something because you have something. We get up and do something because we are something. This man wasn't roaming around feeling sorry for himself and what he did not have. He exercised the dignity that was in his heart and the self-respect. And he got up and he delivered his papers. He didn't care what anybody would say. That's what God has done for the poor. The poor Christian is not poor. The poor Christian, according to our text has an exalted position in the body of Christ as a co-heir with the rich and a co-heir with the riches of all. He's a co-heir, she's a co-heir with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And one day they will stand toe-to-toe with Christ and judge angels. Listen how Paul deals with this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Starting in verse 22. Or 23, I'm not sure. 1 Corinthians 12. 21, alright, we'll start there. 
On the contrary, Paul says, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker or poorer are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, like the poor and the wretched, who just barely make it in life, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. That's the poor. The uneducated. In the world, the poor have a place of honor. In the church, the less honorable have an important position. Please understand this. You see, if you 2,000 years ago, you could have went into a church service, and the master would have been taught by the slave. You got more honor from God, the less honorable member. You see, today we want to see who's educated. Today we want to see who's got charisma. Today we want to see who fits the part. 2,000 years ago, that's not how it happened. 2,000 years ago, God poured out his spirit and gave gifts to men. So those people who you would think on the street were nobody in the Christian church, they could prophesy, they could preach, they could teach, they could witness, and yes, they could be used in miracles. That's how God so composed the body. That those in the world with lesser honor got much honor in the Christian church. Nothing has changed. Hopefully you enjoy the teaching that comes from this pulpit. Understand something, I have an 8th grade education. I have no education. I dropped out of 8th grade. Never went to high school. Never went to college. Never went. But you see, God gifts men and women. Not like the world would do. But God gifts men and women to be pastors, to be teachers, to be evangelists, to be preachers. Are you with me? God does that. God gives that. He gives dignity. That's what James is talking about here today. Matter of fact, he goes on to say later on that God gave the poor to be rich in faith. That the greatest work 2,000 years ago when it comes to salvation was amongst the poor. And it still is today. The great revivals that are taking place in Africa and other areas are amongst the poor. Even Paul has to say this in 1 Corinthians. Where's the rich man? Where's the wise man? Where's the debater of the world? Where's the philosopher? Has not God made foolish all the wisdom of the world? He chose what? The low things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. The Christian church doesn't make it because God chose and picked the most, the, the, the famous or the prestigious or the rich or the smartest The doctor came for the sick who need a physician, not the well. That's a strong word to the poor. Every Christian sermon, when we're preaching, the word of God should fill our hearts with dignity to realize that we are co-heirs with Christ. We are priests unto God. That the poor Christian can do more in the eyes of God than than a thousand rich men. The poor, and the either a poor man or a poor woman who knows Christ has the power and has the ability to lead another human being from the gates of hell. The rich can't do it. The scientists can't do it. The educator can't do it. It's the Christian. 
And I try to get that point across many times when I'm preaching, many times when I'm teaching. When you walk into a room, don't feel superior and don't feel inferior. Understand something. You have the words of life. You have something every human being needs. Redemption. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. We are merely human but we carry the mystery of eternal life. The poor carry the mystery of eternal life. Me and my wife were walking down Fifth Avenue in Manhattan one day and we're walking by. You got sacks over here and you got this over here and you got this over here and you got all the stories. And we're just walking down and, and we're walking, we're holding hands and, and you hear this noise. And we turn around and there's probably about 15 or 20 little Koreans carrying signs, repent. They got the megaphone and they're walking, militant. Repent, the Lord. and they're saying in their broken English, repent, the Lord Jesus is coming back. And, and who's laughing, who's this? And me and my wife went over there. That was so encouraging. They, they were being mocked. Little did they know that these were the very messengers of God. The very messengers of God. God came down out of heaven and touched their hearts. He didn't touch everybody else on Fifth Avenue. He touched their hearts. He gave them the words of life. And one day in eternity to find out that their ministry was fruitful because God made it fruitful. There's a word to the rich now. In verse 10 and 11. And the rich in his humiliation, or what he's saying, and the rich exalt in his humiliation. Because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers falls and its beauty perishes. So also is the rich man's will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Let me read it from the Amplified, verse 10. And the rich person... Or to glory in being humbled by being shown his human frailty. Because like the flower of the grass, he too will pass away. This is, this is beautiful. The way James, the wisdom of scripture is like, it's like a surgeon doing brain surgery or spinal surgery. It takes a special person with a special scalpel to do a special surgery. This is spiritual surgery at its best. He's not pitting the rich against the poor or the poor against the rich. He's showing them what the Christ event has done for both. The Christ event for the poor has given them dignity. The Christ event for the rich has given them humility. Here James tames the haughty attitude of the rich with the realization of their human frailty and mortality. Speaking to a man in the gym one day, a wealthy guy. Nice guy, friend of mine. And he was talking about, it was Warren Buffett, I think it was. And, and I remember he was looking up and he was talking about the billions of dollars he's worth. And he, was, he had this sparkle in his eye of admiration. It's billions. And he was talking like he was almost going to float off. <laughs> so I had to come with the pin. And I looked at him. I say, he's 85 years old, he's going to die soon. And I got busted his bubble. 
No, no, seriously. You can see his whole countenance change because he came face to face with the reality of his frailty and mortality. Like, what is an 85-year-old? You need another billion dollars? You're in the last chapter of the last paragraph of the last sentence of your life and you're concerned about how much money you have? I'm not saying Warren Buffett did that, but he, he was like, billions, he's worth billions. And that simple answer, but he's going to die soon. It was, like, it, was like, it was like a cold shower. I can still remember it to this day. It was like the whole conversation went flat after that. Because he was struggling. You see, me and you, we talk about this. We sing about dying, going to heaven all the time. This is great. They think we're nuts. You know, but the unsaved, they can't have a, a long, reasonable discussion on death. They can't do it. Very And if the richer they are, the more uncomfortable they become. Coming back from a golf, uh, playing some... Uh, country club up in Westchester. I'm coming home one day and uh, it's raining out. And I got a guy in the car. He's a CEO of a, a company on Wall Street. And I'm giving him a ride home, and it's about I know, it's the evening. It's pouring out. I'm doing about 65 miles an hour, and so he starts talking about you know. So I hear you're a Christian and everything. So what got into life? And I started talking about sin and forgiveness, and I don't want to go to hell. And it, well, forget about it. This, if he could have jumped out of the car. <laughs> He would have jumped out if it wasn't raining. I don't think he cared about the 65 miles an hour. I think it's because it was raining. He wouldn't have jumped out this window. He's a man who fought cancer. He's, he, he's, dead. he's dead. I don't know what would have happened. But I assured him that God loved him. But he went up against the window of the car. It was a little bit uncomfortable for a moment. But I remember just saying, stay with it, Brian. Don't let, don't let the rains go. This is not a time for comic relief. I kept got to be saved. you got to be born again. Wealth can be a very self-deceptive idol. It is now, it was then, and it was in James's congregation. They were rich, they were wealthy, and they were Christians. In this kind of idolatry, you can forget to exalt in your humiliation. Because they're so enamored with self-deception, that they're beyond mortality and frailty. And James pulls no punches. Don't forget, you are like the flower of the grass that withers in the heat of the day. You're going to die in your pursuit and you don't know when. What an antidote for the haughty nature that could happen when you're wealthy. I'm not saying everybody has that, but it could happen. James, remember, is talking to the Christian rich. The Christian pulpit should always be a reminder to these two types of inner attitudes. One is to be encouraged in their dignity. One is to be reminded of their frailty and to be humble. Money doesn't give you humility. But the reality of death should. And James is telling these Christians and reminding them that God has granted you the gift of humility to realize that what you have is only a gift 
and you're a steward of it, to use it properly. And do not, by any stretch of the imagination, look down upon the poor or oppress them in any way whatsoever. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. For many of us, we're probably living in between the two of these realities. We're probably not poor enough or we're probably not rich enough, but it's still good common sense for all of us. Understand something. Even the poor in America do well. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, it's it's something admirable. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about the Christian church over here. The poor should be reminded of their exalted position as members of the body of Christ. As we continue to provide for their tangible needs. What the soul needs. What what the body needs is food and clothing. But the soul has to have self-respect. The soul has to have a way to wake up and go and have a purpose in life. God has given every Christian, rich or poor, a gift to serve in the body of Christ. And when the poor are not serving in the body of Christ, they're doing their soul a great injustice. And they're missing out on the dignity that Christ died for on the cross. Dignity. No one's walking in here and saying, who's handing out a track, or who's handing out a threshold, or who's leading in worship, and and how much do you make, and what school did you go to? You're coming to a Christian church, and that makes no difference whatsoever. When someone's talking to you about Christ, you're not going to say, well, what's your education, and and, and what's your portfolio? Can I see a tax return, please, before I can receive you a message? No one's asking that. The only thing that qualifies you is you're, you're born again. That, you, that you're a co-heir with Christ now. That, that God has taken you from the cesspool of sin and has and given you dignity and has washed you from your sin. And the rich need to be reminded of their frail humanity. Constantly. You know, you can't go to the New Testament without constantly running into this theme. Paul talks about it. Hebrews talks about it. Uh, Peter talks about it. It, it. It's constantly there. You know why? Because this dynamic between the rich and the poor is always there. You know? The poor have to be reminded there's something greater than the riches of this world. It's the riches of Christ. That's the, that, that, those are the intangibles that fill the soul. But at the same time, the, poor have to, the rich have to remember that the poor brother who's teaching me, we've got to take care of them. That's the rich's job. To give and meet the needs of the poor. And not just meet the needs of the poor in the church. Christians should meet the needs of the poor whether Christians or non-Christians. We meet the needs the best we can as a church and we do that. And as individuals we should do that. We should do the best we can to meet people's needs. And with that might be an open door to talk to them about Christ. The rich and their frail humanity and the uncertainties of riches. You know, 2,000 years ago, you could be rich, but that could be taken away and confiscated like that. There were no banks. There was no investments. You didn't own the real estate. Any king or emperor could have came along and just taken whatever you had at any moment. Nothing was secure. They had to find places to bury it in caves. Today, if you make money, you have a good chance of keeping it. But not so then. Riches 2,000 years ago was really uncertain. 
Let's close with verse 12. I love this verse. I love preaching on it. Blessed is the man. Here's another verse that just seems to come out of nowhere. But remember, it has, has everything to do with the context. Right? I want you to think about the first test and trial that the Bible, James talks about, is between the rich and the poor dynamic. Okay? So he's still addressing that. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under the trial of being rich and learning to be humble. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial when he's poor and being oppressed. Do I need to read it again? Are you following my paraphrase? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial when he is rich and God is teaching him to be humble. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial even though he be poor. Let him look to Christ because in Christ he finds all his dignity. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Uh, is it eternal life? Is it something here? It, it's probably both what James is talking about here. But the first thing, it's most likely something going on at that moment. When a trial in your life, the trial in, in, in the rich man's life has passed. And he finds himself humbled by the reality that he too is just a mortal under all the uncertainties of the future and the frailty of life. And he's just human. And he comes to this realization that money and riches and fortune are meaningless if your soul is not saved. And he comes out of the trial not not enamored by things anymore. There's something beautiful. And I've had this many times when you see a rich person who's deeply humble and generous. And thinks of other people first. it's, It's beautiful. It's like someone who's wearing the crown of life. That's what you see. Blesses the man who remains. He will receive the crown of life. There's something about the Christian church when you come to somebody who's poor and you don't know because they walk in dignity and they walk in self-respect that you never know that their stomach might be hungry because they're not walking around saying, I'm poor and I can't make it and life is just always hard and I'm always in a bad place and no, it's like it's like it's the person without legs and you don't know they don't have legs because they don't tell nobody I don't have legs because they're too busy wearing a smile and wearing dignity in their life. That's the crown of life. It's magnificent. When you see the poor rich in faith, when you see the poor rich in self-respect, when you see the poor rich in dignity, when you see the poor rich in, in helps, not like they're the victim all the time at the back of the line, at the back of the food line. No, they show up and they want to work and they want to get in ministry and they want to help out and they don't want to be known that there's some sort of handicap or some sort of disease or poverty. No, they're part of the human race and they don't care what they have or what they don't have. They have Christ and that's all they want people to know is I have Christ. I'm a rich man. That's the crown of life. And so it is with the rich. When you can be around somebody for a length of time and not realize that they can buy and sell you over and over again. But they don't talk about their riches, they don't talk about their money, they don't flaunt it. They're just part of the culture. No better, no worse than anybody else. That's the crown of life. In the immediate context, that's what James is talking about. 
trials that the rich and the poor go through. Do you know if we can win that in our hearts, how much better and sweeter Christianity would be, how much better and sweeter America would be? This is on the firing line today. Politicians make their business out of this. Picking this scab of class warfare between the rich and the poor. They neither bring any humility to the rich and they don't bring no dignity to the poor. The rich stay, the rich stay haughty and the poor stay poor. With no self-respect and no dignity. Not so in the Christian church. We got to make sure at all times we're pulling down the pride in all our hearts and also raising ourselves in dignity. What is in our life? Maybe I'm not poor, maybe you're not poor financially, but what is it? What's that thing you, you and I are? We're known as that person. I don't want to be known as the person that's always complaining about this and has this problem. I, I want to go through the worst of life and nobody to know. I was telling my wife, I'm so grateful that I got a church that prays for me and cares for me as I've been going through these migraine headaches for the longest time. And, you know, sometimes I couldn't preach and Monday night's been hard and Thursdays. So the church knows, but I told my wife, I don't want nobody to know. I want to show up. As Jesus says, when you fast, don't be like the Pharisees. Wash your face, anoint yourself with oil, and go out into the world and enjoy God and enjoy people. Don't be telling everybody, oh, you know, I'm fasting, and, you know, I'm a religious person, and, you know, and I'm fasting for everybody, and my life is miserable. No, you shouldn't know anything. If you're poor, they shouldn't know it. You're rich, you shouldn't know it. Don't let anybody know. Wear the crown of life. Father, we thank you, Lord, that we do love you and we are sure to wear the crown of life, if not in this world, without a doubt in the next. Help us as we go to the trials of our own personal kind, Father God, and that we can wear this crown of life, that people can see us and, and, and not even know anything about us because all we're concerned about is the welfare of other people, Father God. Let us be consumed with the welfare of of other people, Lord. Help us, God. Help us. Help this minister. Help this pastor to get his eyes off his own troubles and on to other people's lives. Help us, God. Help us not to look at life through our poverty or look at life through our riches. Both are deceptive, Father. Help us not to look at life through our injuries and our ailments, God, or our age or our getting older or our decrepitude. This also is deception, Father. God, let us be who you called us to be. Those who love you and walk around with the crown of life, rich with the health of the intangibles of hope, peace, and joy. In Jesus' name.